Hey, Kyle from Driveline Baseball here to answer some common questions that we've had on the website. All right, welcome back to the 90th percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce of Baseball America Podcast. Very excited again this week. We have another big guest, uh, potentially the biggest name we've had so far, though Nick Lodolo, depending upon how he works out, that might change things a little bit. But we have Kyle Body, founder and owner of Driveline Baseball. Uh, if you don't know Kyle's background or about Driveline, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But uh, also a former minor league uh, director of pitching, um, incentives and pitching coordinator for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I think Nick, Nick's probably a bigger deal than me <laughs> as a guy that used to coach Nick. Yeah. <laughs> we got, we had Tom, we had Tom house too. So that's another big mm, one. Tom's so, a bigger yeah. name than me. Yeah. yeah that was the point. first one that was, that kicked off the, the entire series of podcasts we've been doing here. And that was just like a insane honor to be able to talk to him someone that's yeah, like worked with no nolan ryan all the way through to like you know I'm, sure. I'm from new england so i'm a patriots fan you know so todd brady too obviously sure. the football yeah, yeah exactly i was a little excited about that but kyle let's talk about you um so i i think you know i gave you an intro there driveline baseball i think people know the name at this point and and what you guys do but i wanted to sort of give you the, the platform here what was your background? How did you get into this? And then we'll talk a little bit about what makes, you know, driveline yourself unique. Yeah, it was, um, primarily, so I moved to Seattle, uh, geez, 16 years ago now, and I was coaching little league. Um, and just wanted to, if I was going to start coaching, I wanted to have a little more structure to how I didn't know how to coach. You know, my father was a coach. Uh, he was a really good coach. Um, but the reality is, you know, playing sports, coming from the Midwest, just played tennis, soccer, hockey, you know, baseball, you play a lot of sports, just how it is. And uh, you don't, I think a lot of people tend to assume they know how to coach something because they played it. And I just didn't have that assumption. You know, I wasn't sure how to coach people um, and what the best way to go about it was. So uh, I figured if I was going to start coaching that I should buy a lot of books on the subject. Uh, had a lot of mentors that I really appreciate uh, and uh, just try to get into the side of um, coaching and try to find some evidence-based stuff on how to primarily like keep players healthy. <clears throat> Cause that's what I was most concerned about. You know, I had a rash of arm injuries uh, growing up uh, and just felt that there had to be some answers in medical literature. And it turns out that, there really isn't, you know, there really wasn't um, the answers that I was seeking. Like, how should you pitch? Like, what set of mechanics keep you healthy? Um, I don't think that there's, you know, there's still not really evidence exactly what to do uh, more now. But back then, there was really none. So you're reading books by Tom House, as we talked about. Uh, the Art and Science of Pitching is just a tremendous book. You know, I believe it holds up today, right? And, and the concepts, um, you know, the very specifics on Tom has probably said it on your podcast and he's said it publicly too, that the details of the book, you know, have since been proven wrong. Some of the details, right? Um, but that's not what I took out of art and science of pitching. And I don't think that's what anyone should take out of a book that's 20 plus years old, 30 years old now. Um, what you should take out of books like that is the structure of how to think and how to ask questions and how to develop knowledge. And I think that's what Tom really gave to uh, the baseball community. I think it's very important to recognize that. Um, and yeah, that's certainly what I took out of it. So that's kind of my background is reading um, everything I could. And then when there was just a real lack of experimental data on competitive players, I figured we had to collect our own. So one thing led to another, and I'm skipping a lot here, 
but I ended up building building my own biomechanics lab and uh, driveline baseball is kind of born out of that initiative. Yeah, and there's certainly you know a lot of folks out there um, that are training athletes, training baseball athletes, pitchers, hitters, whatever. Um, but the way that you guys approach things, I think, was different, and in, in at least you know in terms of what you guys were able to grow and scale. That you know it's it's based on as you sort of said, you know, quantifiable data and being able to try things out and prove it. So I guess is is that what you feel makes yourself and, and driveline different or, you know, is it deeper than that? Yeah. When I read Moneyball, it was several years after it was written. You know, I did, I wasn't in the first wave of people that read it. Um, and so then when I finally did, I was pretty, I enjoyed the book, uh, but I had felt at the time as someone who studied economics and computer science, you know, if I wanted to work in baseball, then maybe the analytics revolution was too far along and trying to catch on now would be somewhat difficult. Um, I now know that I was wrong about that. But when I read Moneyball, the, the chapter that stuck out to me the most wasn't about Bill James or the quantification of the game. It was more about Scott Hatterberg, uh, player development story, you know, where Scott was really underappreciated, undervalued, signed because he did some things that people didn't value very much uh, besides walking, right? And then later in the book, you know, Billy is quoted as saying, you know, he or, you know, there's that period where Michael Lewis, and I was fortunate enough to be on Michael Lewis's podcast, so it was awesome to talk to him about it, uh, you know, a decade later, is that, uh, you know, it was so weird that Billy believed that there were these undervalued traits and then simultaneously believed they couldn't be developed, right? Like he can't, he believes that Miguel Tejada will always swing and miss too much, right? And um, it was super interesting. It was super interesting to see. And it just didn't make sense that you would believe in all these other things, that things can change and the quantification of the game, this, that, the other, and then player development is this stagnant pillar. And that really reflected the state of baseball then. And I would argue it reflects the state of baseball now. There's been a lot of change, but we can get into it. My argument is that player development has not really meaningfully changed at all. Yeah, there's just more numbers and more technology and there's more investment and more new coaches. But at the end of the day, very few organizations are, are really doing anything different. They're just shuffling kind of chairs um, and saying it's different, which I think is very, is not the same as making a meaningful change. Yeah, yeah. I think that you see that, especially... I mean, it's in all all areas of business. I mean, before I got this job at Baseball America, I was in sales for <laughs> 16 years. And, sure. you know, you work at different companies and you have success at different places. And you see that it's like there's people who bring something to the table that's actually like tangible and useful. And there's other people where it's just like eyewash, like whatever the new word is, whatever the new thing that somebody has to use, the new system, whatever it is they jump on that, but it doesn't actually have like any meaning behind it. So, so I get that. Um, and that kind of leads into like our general conversation here. You know, you've consulted, still could still work, consult and work with a bunch of major league teams. You know, you've worked as a minor league coordinator for a major league team with the Reds um, very recently. Are there sort of like basic flaws or common problems that you had identified early on or is it like is it more structural and like systematic like things that need to change 
Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple things that fans might not necessarily appreciate, but kind of tie it back to what you said. So he worked in sales for a long time. So did I. Uh, not not 16 years, but you know, that's definitely I worked in that area and was a retail manager for a yeah. uh, formal wear store. Um, how much of your job was tracked by KPIs, right? Close rate, call rate, uh, response rate, like a lot, right? Yeah, a, a fair amount. And it depended on the company, but right. how it was collected and like how you could game the system was sort of <laughs> a big sure. thing too. No doubt. There's, yeah, definitely a, a avenues to, for abuse and all that. But, you know, in no sales job, would you do a job? And then if you have a review right at the end of six months or three months or whenever your periodic review would be like, would you be able to like, you know, boss would be like, oh, you're doing a good slash bad job. And it'd be based on nothing. Yeah. Right. It's going to be based on some sort of how much revenue did you bring in, expenses, leads closed, right? Like there's some key performance indicators, some metric yeah. that, you know, or a set of metrics that say that you agree on, you know, a good job, in my opinion, the employer and the employee agree before, you know, you start as like, these are the things that I'll be judged on. The employee brings up, hey, these are some conflicts of interest, right? Some things that I, I think maybe not accurately reflect my value or like I can abuse the system this way. You should know that. Right. So I don't think that's a good KPI. Right. And then you jointly agree. And then, you know, X months later, right, you review what you jointly agreed on. And then some of those things you'll be wrong about that. Maybe those weren't good metrics, but largely, you know, there are things you jointly, you know, collectively bargained. Right. And so like that, that happens in a good sales environment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that doesn't happen in baseball, right? So like that doesn't that doesn't happen in baseball, right? In in every business, like that's generally how you run, you know, reviews and let employees know they're doing a good job and, and you know, whether you rehire them as a contract basis, right? Like a lot of sales jobs are contract based and in baseball, most jobs are uniform contracts, right? So sure. it's a one to two, three, four year deal. Uh, and going into renewal, you should know if you're doing a good job, right? That's an exceedingly rare position. So with the Reds, it was that way, right? When Dick Williams was the GM and Eric Lee was the farm director, you know, Eric sat me down and said, we're going to agree on a set of metrics and KPIs. So I had three KPIs. Um, and a lot, you know, finally, one of them was based around, does Baseball America think we're doing a good job? <laughs> was one of them. Um, you know, like, does Baseball America slash Fangraph slash, you know, like, it's collaboration, like, sure. externally, does, do our farm system rankings reflect, like, mm -hmm. do they think we're, our pitching is being developed well, right? And then internally, do we feel it's, you know, like, our internal projection system? And there's a waiting. So I think that's fair, right? There's an internal, you know, waiting system, which can be gamed, right? And then there's external waiting systems, which can be gamed, right? But when you combine them, it removes a lot of the bias, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that was a really good metric. There were other ones too, like stuff gains and a few others. Um, and that was great. But that's what I was used to also, because the organization I had last first worked for in Houston is the same way, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a video scout. And so, you know, my grades on the players had to be accurate to a baseline that they were used to from another vendor that they had, mm -hmm. right? Um, and another method of projecting injuries and performance. Uh, and so then when I could prove that I could, right, then I was, you know, going to work there. And so that just made a lot of sense, right? And then in many organizations, um, and, you know, with Dick leaving, Dick was a very big proponent of that. And so was Eric Lee, like that went away. And that type of nebulous, we don't know if anyone's doing a good job and we're not going to grade people and no metrics is, is not for me. And like that concept of organizational theory, I think is a very 
big problem if you don't address it. Um, and so we've so when I talk about the fans, they tend to blame everything on the GM, right? It's the GM's fault, the president's fault, whatever that job is called these days. Uh, we develop, we don't develop pitching, we don't develop hitting. We have too many injuries. We you know don't spend enough money, whatever it is, right? Our contracts that we sign are stupid. Um, and the GM is really the shot caller, so that's what the GM signs up for. You know, he signs up to get made fun of and get yelled at and to get fired. Everyone knows that. And the GM himself is okay with it. The reality is, is that like, you know, the GM doesn't make all the decisions and probably doesn't even make the majority of the decisions, right? Like he delegates to people underneath and this whole middle management layer, special assistant layer. Uh, and when you don't have an organizational theory around that, like on how jobs are delineated, who's in charge, um, that's a really dysfunctional organization. And you see that pretty much in almost every baseball organization, because while things have rapidly changed in the last 10 to 20 years, when it comes to information and the types of people that are in the front offices, um, what really has not reached baseball is modern organizational theory. And I, you know, I would argue that there's a few organizations that have made those changes. The Dodgers are a good example of that. The Astros under Lunau were, uh, and they, those changes still exist under Click. Uh, so like how you remap an organization, Tampa Bay, very streamlined, uh, but the vast majority still have a very hodgepodge, you know, group of people without a defined organizational chart, without a defined set of responsibilities. And as a result, you have a lot of variance in, in results, outcomes, you have a lot of turnover. Um, yeah, that can be really frustrating. And that's, that's unfortunately, you know, what, um, I think a lot of people run into at the, at, in uh, professional baseball when they come from, you know, perhaps a more, more streamlined and more defined industry, sure. I guess. Yeah, because I think that that's that's common no matter what sort of industry you're in at this point. That, like you said, like there's there are going to be KPIs. You know, there's you know quarterly goals. There's most of the time a pretty clear structure um, in terms of the hierarchy and how decisions are made and and responsibilities and that sort of thing. Um, kind yeah, of, it's an opportunity to train your employees, right? Like if you're yeah. a scout and you draft a button. Like I was with an organization in the past where. I brought up the concept of like grading the scouts previous picks and figuring out not to fire them, but to figure out like, Hey, we can train them. So I was with an organization once that paired video of hitters, like lots of them and paired them with blast data. Right. So like this swing produced this bat speed. And then that on a 2080 scale is this. Okay. Right? And then, so you have this large library of verifiable fast bat speed or slow bat speed, right? And the scouts would watch it and train it, right? So they would, through a web application, like watch those videos and then guess, and grade, right? I think these players have high bat speed, right? And then you find out like, are they good at grading bat speed or not, right? And it turns out that most are really good at it because scouts are good at that. But the ones that they might miss, like, why did they miss it? Are they missing a consistent type of swing, right? Yeah. And why? So then you can say, actually, this guy has like plus bat speed, you know, and this, you know, verifiably has plus bat speed. So when you go out and go out in the field and watch high school kids and they don't have blast sensors or track man or Hawkeye, and you, you have to rely on your eyes, this guy's been trained over and over to see like, this is what fast bat speed looks like in this bucket and so forth. Right. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was, I didn't think it was genius. I just thought it was a good idea and it made sense, you know, and then I went to an organization and brought that up and they're like, no, why would we do that? Like, you know, we don't like look back at our scouts performance. And then you look at the performance of both organizations and which one has drafted like a lot of really good hitters and which one has not. And it's very, they're very related, right? Like you have to train yeah. your employees. 
and and failing to train your employees is uh, a big cardinal sin. High performance management is the best book that people you know people say it's one of the best books ever written on base on on management, and I agree. And it's written by this you know possibly the most important CEO of all time, um, Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel in the past, and. He spent, he says very like half, almost half the book is dedicated to if you do not invest in the most important thing you can do is invest in training your employees, the most important thing. Uh, and if you don't do it because of short sightedness or you don't have time, he's like, that doesn't make sense. He's like, the only thing that matters is that your employees are, you invest in them and train them and, and get them on the same page and, and, and define very specific expectations, what you want, but you can't define expectations and demand things of them and then not train them, which is also what happens, yeah. right? So uh, he, and the fact that, you know, I would bring that book up a lot. It's very well known in business. Very, almost every Silicon Valley person has read it. Everyone yeah. in business, it's like by far the most highly recommended book, right? And, you know, I would bring it up to people in the front office constantly in, in baseball organizations I work with and they never heard of it, never read it, right? They don't, they don't incorporate modern business like how to run a modern business into baseball and they think it's baseball is very different than a normal business and in many ways it is but like how you lay out an organization might matter more in baseball than it does for your average software company it really does so uh it's very frustrating i think that that's the thing that frustrates me the most i think and it's why like i had a lot of opportunity to go in as a coordinator director this year and i just didn't feel good about the organizational structure of the places i was at you know didn't didn't feel that you know, it was going to lend itself to long-term success. Yeah. And I think like, you know, as you said, like, you know, success sort of leaves clues. Like it's not, it's not a mistake when there's, there's good teams that have good processes that make good picks and develop the guys that come into their system. And I'll just like relate it back to myself. But when I started to get into analytics, like more heavily, cause I had written about baseball for years now and it was during 2020 where like i really leaned into it like i had a baseline understanding but i read the driveline blogs I had a couple of friends that are analysts that more or less like drilled me on information just like kind of blindly giving me like pitch data or like hitter data and being like break this down like what's good what's bad and the reason i did it was because i wanted to learn i thought it was bad at evaluating pitchers like i you know before i came to baseball america i started prospects live and i, I founded that and I founded that site after writing about like fantasy for years because I wanted to evaluate prospects. I love baseball. I was going to the Cape Cod League, you know, all the time during the summer because I live out there. And, you know, the numbers are, that are available, other places aren't available. I wanted to like look at characteristics and identify like what's good, what's going to translate to success at the next level. And like, what's the mirage too? You know, like this guy that's, you know, hitting homers here, like why isn't he going to be successful at the next level and like what does he have to change even and like i feel like i don't know if my evaluations are a little more accurate it's only been a couple of years but like i understand that because like i did it to train myself like i wanted to be able to look at things that i knew translated to success like so it doesn't make sense to me why wouldn't major league organizations particularly scouts like you know my mother was a teacher my my father my father was a lawyer and like, you have to consistently like educate yourself throughout your career. So like, that was common in my house, I guess, but it like, it doesn't make sense to me or like connect why you have this job and you're, you know, have an opportunity to like make change and win and be successful, why you wouldn't take those characteristics. So I guess my next question is like, so 
if you're in charge of, of, a, of a team right now, in charge of the minor leagues, and they give you sort of carte blanche, like how would you structure things and sort of what would you change even about the, the structure? Because I know you've talked about online, like the entertainment element of the game sort of being at odds with the development element of the game, particularly in the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it made no secret, told the teams, I think it's, most likely, you know, what I'm shooting for is AGM, you know, at this at this time in my career, I think it makes the most sense uh, with the focus on running the minor leagues and player development, um, probably pro scouting as well. Getting looped into that makes the most sense. Um, I think those two are pretty, pretty hard to separate, um, especially when you have a 20 round draft that's probably going to get shortened over the next couple of years. You know, you really need to focus on non-drafted free agency and pro free agency and indie ball are going to need to be really important. And that needs to be tied into player development. So that's one big thing that can change um, in organizations for the most part. Uh, but, you know, some of the first thing, you know, in the first year, any job like this, you just need to, you know, you need to go in and you need to evaluate what you have. You know, you have to, you can't go in with the intention of firing people. Um, you know, my mentors with the Reds that I really, really look up to till to this day and talk to, you know, they said, you know, make sure you give these people a chance and, you know, not going to get into all of it, but we had an opportunity to potentially separate from some people if we wanted to, you know, before even giving them a chance. Um, and you know, we didn't, and many of them surprised, surprised me, you know, and that's, that's the point is you, you don't, you never know really what's cap what people are capable of until you invest in their training. And so, you know, Dick Williams and, and Eric were, were good enough in ownership, you know, because it starts with them. We're more, more than supportive that of investing in them. So buying books, buying training courses, especially through the pandemic, through 2020, which was my first year, um, you know, investing in them, flying them, you know, prior to the pandemic. I took the job in 2019 you know, to drive line to the Florida baseball ranch, to Texas baseball ranch, to anywhere, to TPI, um, we, the Reds would pay for it if, if they wanted to do it. And I thought that was so cool that the owner, that ownership in the front office was, was all about it because I, I was so passionate about training my employees. And so it was Dick Williams, you know, he was, he said, if you don't do it, we're not going to hire you. You know, it was a very big pillar for him. Uh, and I agreed. And, you know, we had high expectations. There's no doubt about it. I've spoken, I think most of the sound bites probably of me <laughs> come out from that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, and I'd make no, no excuses for holding high expectations. Like if an organization says they want to win the world series and wants to be a championship caliber team, then, then I believe them. Right. But to do that, you have to hold people to extremely high standards and you have to help them get there. And if they don't get there, you have to take this, they make unpopular decisions and that's part of running a good organization. Right. And, Everyone wants to quote Bill Belichick and watch, you know, the man in the arena and, and see these things. And they don't recognize that part of a part of this is separating from people that can't help you, you know, get to the top. But you need to make sure you can't make a mistake. Same thing in scouting. If you give up on a player because you're personally disappointed with them and you don't want to give them a chance. We had a player with the Reds like that who was a high draft pick and, you know, they and it had some org fatigue. Right. When you give fresh eyes and you give them a chance, that player ended up playing in the fall league is on the 40 man for us now and it's incredible right like that that's so cool to watch and those are the great stories of the talent that you can get and that applies to your coaches your evaluators your scouts your front office and your analysts everywhere you have to just say hey this is the new vision this is a unified vision in, a, in most underperforming organizations it's because of a lack of vision a lack of commitment and a lack of desire a lack of willingness to do what's what's right and what's tough 
um, to, you know, when my view on it is when I got paychecks from the Reds, um, you know, signed by Phil Castellini, I believe. And at the end of the day, I'm getting paid a really good wage to make the Cincinnati Reds the best team they could possibly be. And my feelings and my comfort, they don't matter. They don't, period. Like, otherwise, uh, what's the point, right? Like, I'm, point, the first thing I'm trying to do is, is get the Reds to win a World Series and to build pitching depth. Like, that was my first thing I wanted to do. You know, second thing is that every player, every pitcher that I had is, is running out of days in their career. And that's a big pressure. And if you don't feel that as a coordinator, director, farm director, and, and you're, you know, not, if you're not sensitive to the fact that young men are putting their careers on the line and in your hands, and you should, every day that you waste is a day that they can't get better because of your comfort. I mean, that's, that's morally very difficult for me to handle. And I just, you know, I told my staff, we're not going to do that. And as a result, the staff that we had were, were incredible workers. I mean, incredible work ethic. Uh, whether it was the new people I brought in to Brian Garman, to Forrest Herman, Brian Conger, Casey Weathers, Simon Matthews, to people like Seth Atherton, Rob Wooten, um, you know, Elmer Descens, Darren Ebert. I mean, we had an extremely hardworking team and proud of them. And, you know, they understood that, like, the, those the players came first. You know, the club and the players come first and our comfort, you know, it's not about us anymore. It's just not. You know, so when people say, oh, it's a job and it's a livelihood and you got to think about that, uh, you know, there's a lot of jobs you can go do. You can go work at Costco. You can go work at Ernst & Young. You can go work plenty of other jobs that make decent money. Like if you're going to work in baseball, we're here to we're here to win the World Series and change people's lives. Like and if that's not the first thing you think about, then this job's not for you. So instilling that culture and, and demanding high, you know, demand high expectations, but investing in our people, you know, paying them well and, and giving them every opportunity to, to learn. I think was the biggest thing um, that you have to do first, you know, and that's what I would do uh, if, you know, if, and when I become an AGM or GM, you know, like that's the thing that's got to change. And people can talk about track man and weighted balls and, and all these other things that we did with, with the reds and no doubt they had a big result, but like we went from 30th and run value to the best in the minor leagues from, from worst to best, you know, in two years. And we went from XERA of I think six worst to six best, you know, strikeout rate from really poor to extremely good uh, stuff plus from, you know, really low to second best. Um, it didn't happen, you know, by accident, right? It, it happened because we care a lot about the non-drafted free agents we brought in, cared a lot about the player acquisition, cared a lot about player development, but more importantly, we cared about a culture of improving uh, and, and you know, everything that you read about Bill Belichick and Nick Saban and these, these really good leaders you know, it's, there's a reason they don't speak about specifics that much. And it's not because they're trying to hide it. It's that an excellence, excellence isn't in the boring. Excellence is in the day-to-day. -day. Excellence is in the culture. And if you have a high standard and the players know it, and you have high standards for the coaches and the players know it, then you, you get a lot of buy-in. So, yeah, it's a bit of a rambling, but no, that's no, kind no. of the thing I feel the most passionate about. And I was so fortunate because Dick Williams, he demanded it of, of me. Dick had extremely high expectations of me. Eric Lee had very high expectations of me. Eric Lee was very critical of me. Uh, not in a bad way, not in a good way. He just, he was very critical and he yeah. demanded the best. And when I, when I fell short, he didn't, he didn't hesitate to let me know. I could be doing great and everything else. And if I came short, Eric didn't care. He didn't give me a pass. And uh, I respect that. You know, those guys, uh, those guys got the best out of me. Yeah. And that's the only way you're going to get better too, is when it's, you know, communicated clearly what, needs to improve and you mentioned it a little bit um but i was actually interested to ask you a little bit about i guess that early period and you know dealing with the pandemic 
You guys have the draft. It's cut to five rounds. You did an unbelievable job of, I'm sure, sort of utilizing, you know, that team that you have um, or had of signing non-drafted free agents. I think the number was 12, 13. It was one of the larger classes of non-drafted free agents, yeah. I think, among the teams. Second most. A lot of those guys had success last year. So, yeah. like, you know, what were the keys to that? I mean, because for me, that's, you know, as a prospect writer, I find that to be the most interesting. Everybody knows the top guys, but, you know, it's the action of finding talent that you can, you know, sort of cultivate within your organization. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, fortunately, we we were in a position where our depth was poor with the Reds. You know, we didn't have a lot of pitching depth, um, and that allowed us to be aggressive both in the Rule 5 draft and in non-drafted free agency. And I think that was really important on both sides and pro free agency. So that was, there was a need, right? So if you're the Dodgers or the Tampa Bay Rays or the Padres at the time, you don't have a need and you don't have potentially the ability to sign a lot of players because where are they going to play, right? If you just sign a lot of non-drafted free agents because it's it's free surplus value and you don't give them meaningful playing time, yeah, you know, that, that's not good for them and it's not good for your organization. So there is, you know, you do have to factor that in as well, but we had that opportunity. So, I mean, it was a two week blitz course and absolutely just hammered non-drafted free agency, you know, heading into non-drafted free agency, we had spreadsheets, we had databases full of who we wanted to target our amateur scouting department and our pro scouting department you know, really pulled together to, to crush that. And, and that's what I've said online many times, uh, ownership. Um, people have certainly their opinions on Reds ownership and it's valid, it's their own. Um, but, you know, I can only speak as someone who worked for Reds ownership. You know, they did not lay off a single one of our coaches or one of our full-time scouts. And um, that's not common. And, you know, we were the first to pay the stipend. We were the first to, to guarantee our coaches salary. And that meant a lot because not only does it mean a lot morally, we worked really hard. You know, the results that we got, are a direct result of the fact that ownership invested in us. I mean, there's just, there's no way around it, period. And I'm not here to defend billionaires or this, that, or the other. I'm just speaking like what's, what happened in my career in the short time I was there. Um, and I can't say enough because the results you see in the minor leagues are a direct result of investment and caring about that. You had teams that are in the top three in spending laying off all their coaches. You know, we don't have to name names, but that's embarrassing. Right. And so for the fact that the Reds stepped up and, and did that, it's not a surprise, you know, that we have the breakout seasons that we did. You know, players like Hunter Green got daily instruction, right? Players like our non-drafted free agents that we brought in, you know, that that crazy period of time of recruiting, you know, because it was college recruiting. That's what non-drafted free agency was. Yeah. You know, it was for Braxton Roxby, he had 25 voicemails five minutes after the deadline started. We had to beat out 2014s. We just did. And we did. Right. Because, you know, it came down to three teams and we had the best pitch, you know, 22 teams just wanted to sign him because he had a great slider in the Cape. Uh, yep. And yeah. three teams actually had a plan and we crushed it, period. You know, it wasn't a choice for Braxton. And as a result, what we got out of Braxton is one of the best relievers in the non-drafted free agent period. Yeah. Um, now, he was a great metrics guy. So that was that was easy. Right. But then we also had a guy like Carson Spires, who, in my opinion, was one of our best pitchers in the minor leagues. You know, I think he was one of the three best pitchers in the minor leagues for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one knows about him. And now Carson Spires track man data out of college at Clemson. Not very good. Didn't throw hard. He threw a lot of strikes. Change up. Not very good. You know, had really good results, but wasn't going to translate. Fastball, flat, uh, breaking ball, showed signs, but he didn't throw it very much. So 
I'm fortunate enough to know Monty and, and, and Andrew C. I've known Andrew a long time. And they they recruited me. I mean, Monty, those guys were blowing me up. They're like, you get this guy's a winner. You know, comes from a baseball family. Obviously, I know his uncle played 12 years in the show, and his father's a legend at Clemson. Yeah, I know all that. Um, but I'm just like, hey, you know, every one of these players, we're not signing depth. We're signing players we think that could be impacts, you know. And he's like, they're like, yeah, you know, the, he can really pitch. I'm like, yeah, I see the zero ERA, no doubt about it. And he's like, yeah, but he, he can learn, and he's a winner and this, that. And he was a walk-on, and he's gotten a lot better. And ultimately, I just bought into the, you know, while I couldn't really get there in the metrics, to be honest, or the or the – projection i was just like you know hey these coaches are tough and there's a toughness he's recruited by leggett his whole family played for leggett there's a toughness there if you play for someone like leggett you play for someone like monty there's a toughness mm-hmm. um and to be a walk-on and then you know come from the spires line you know a very very good athletes to a guy that walked on and had to prove himself there's a toughness and i said okay we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do that and then we bring him on and instructs and right away it instructs it's clear yeah, I, I messed up. Like, I, I evaluated this guy wrong. I can't believe I was on the bubble. It was stupid, right? Because his attitude, his his attention to detail, you know, his present stuff when he showed up in Instructs was marginal, just like it was, you know, when I scouted him. But his toughness and his ability, his attention to detail to, to get better and his desire to get better is, is, is the best in the Reds organization. I don't think it's close. And I think most of the players will tell you that. Um and so, like, that's where I missed, and I think it's really cool to learn that because Carson is great. He's in double A, obviously, and he's going to be a really good pitcher. I think he's a big leaguer. Uh, and then people ask, and now he's got a fastball that has 18 inches of carry, right? He's got a nasty sweeper. He's got a really good cutter. His changeup is extremely good, and he went from never throwing more than 40 innings in a year to throwing damn near 100-plus and staying durable. Be like, oh, man, what'd you do with him with lifting? metrics and force plates and biomechanics and we had all that you know our high performance team with the reds is first class you know our our, our sports science that we did with the pitching that we took over is first class you know we had best stuff and it absolutely had an impact on carson's career and I, i'm sure he would say that you know but it's the reality is that we held everyone accountable uh and someone like carson exact someone exactly like carson is exactly the type of player who gets better when you hold them to the highest possible standards because he's he's going to hold you to high standards, and that's true. Like we we told our players, it goes both ways. You know, I told my players in spring training day one, 2020, I said the coaches are responsible for your development, and that was a shock. Like I was like, what? And I said, yeah, I mean, you have to be on time, and you have to do what the coaches say. That's you have to show respect, but understand that I'm holding the coaches responsible for you getting better, right? Period. And I said that in front of all the coaches and the players, and that that really started the change. It's like, oh wow you know, okay, that's different. You know, that's, that's a very different feeling. And someone like Carson took that and ran with it. He demanded the best out of his coaches for his tournament at low A and then Brian Garman at high A and he demanded the best out of his coordinators and he, he got it, you know, and like that's, it's credit to him. It's people like that, that you build an organization around and they wonder, you look back when Carson's pitched 10 years in the big leagues and you, you wonder like, oh man, like, isn't that a cool story? You know, wondering like, how did it all happen? And then you forget that it had really not much to do with metrics or technology or whatever. Like they all played a very big role in his development and will continue. But it's when you have a culture of development and culture of responsibility, that's when you can see a lot of success in players like that. Those are the people that really surprise you. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that I think I initially reached out to you to, to have you do this podcast. You had said something, I think I had discussed it offline with JJ, but you know, it was to the effect of like the best way to like piss off old baseball people 
is to talk about like developing non-drafted free agents or like or not excuse me non-prospects like right. you know yeah, the guys that are org org depth um and we always say the same thing like i think you might have said it in the tweet that it was like they always think it's a nice story but they don't think about what goes behind it um so i guess my question is is that an area that just isn't focused on in terms of maybe bringing in guys that have the right attitude a baseline of skills or whatever and having those guys compete for jobs because they're more willing to put in the work put in the effort like they have that sort of like those intangibles that it factor that can't necessarily be measured in all these different ways that we're looking at yeah that, that's definitely a big part of it you know no doubt about it i think another big part of it is is being willing to upend a lot of uh, your preconceived notions of a player that are also metrically analytically backed, you know? So for example, we all know that Cleveland loves drafting 17 year olds, right? Daniel Espino, great example of that. Right. Um, I had to, I had to sit in the dugout. I was coaching Dayton in Lake County when Espino struck out like 13 in a row. It's like, oof, geez, it's a tough, tough day watching this, you know? And Carson Spires was every bit as good as Espino. Right? He, he beat him. That was the best part too. But you sit there and you're like, damn, makes sense. Dude, this kid's 20 and at high A, Geez, if he repeats high A two more years, she's not going to. But if he does, he'll still be younger than the average player in high A. You're like, geez, so man, you know, and you can see why that makes such sense. But then, like, let me let me flip it around, right? Then on that same day that Espino pitched against us, and he was really, really good, you know, we had Spires start the game. He's better than Espino, beat him, right? And then our reliever, they bring in a bunch of really good relievers. Cleveland, they develop great pitching, not going to lie, right? We bring in Stevie Branch. Right, 24, 25 years old out of RIT. It's his first year. I think Stevie had 105 strikeouts in 50, 60 innings. It's crazy, right? Ridiculous strikeout. I mean, one of the high, I think he has a strikeout lead, like strikeout rate leader in the minor leagues or whatever. He's like, oh, he's 25 and then 24. He's in, in high A, low A. He started in low A and he's 25, 24. And of course, he's beating up on these kids. That That's what we would say, right? And that's what a lot of people say, right? But the, Stevie's 24, but he played four years at a Division three school right? Where he basically didn't play his first two years and he's got a degree in engineering. Do we think that baseball was his number one focus? No. Right. And he would say that getting his degree in engineering from one of the best engineering colleges in the country was his focus as it should be hundred percent, you know, and he's proud of that, you know, and then all of a sudden we bring him in, he's throwing hundred miles an hour, nasty secondaries. And it's like, Oh man, you know, but he's fat. He's old. We got to move him fast. Uh, really think Stevie's really only got like one or two years of actual high-level baseball. It's not like he played four years at Clemson. It's not like he played four years at UW, right? He played at RIT, and I'm not, you know, downplaying Division three baseball. More, more specifically, Stevie played at a program where school was by far his number one most important thing. It's not that he didn't care about baseball. It's not that he wasn't a good player at RIT. He was. But now that he can switch that, his brain entirely over to baseball, that's the first time he's ever been able to do it in his career, right? So is he 24? Or is it really his first year in pro ball, right? And maybe it's not so different than someone that's 20 years old, right? Now he's matured, he's a man, he's a big guy, and he's not going to grow very much. But the projection for Stevie is not so much in the physical as it is in the mental and the day-to-day and handling professional baseball. And so while people will exclude Stevie from prospect list because A, he's a reliever, and B, he's old for the level, I think we really need to rethink what that means, right? Because also in that game, Vin Timpanelli pitched. And that dude was a men's league catcher, right? Like we signed a men's league catcher. I'll shout out to Lee Saris, one of the best scouts I know. 
that's got he was on Josiah Gray, right? He's on Alex Johnson, right? He's on a lot of players that come from non-traditional backgrounds, and he signed a men's league catcher. <laughs> now he's a men's league catcher. He's 23 years old or whatever, and in high, all he's older for he's that old. Of course, he's supposed to be good. What Vinny's never pitched in his life, right? So like developing him is going to have a much different arc, right? Than your average 23, 24, 25 year old as he goes up and he's in Double A, I believe, this year, right? So that is a, that is an assumption we need to challenge not only with the players we have, but the players we acquire, right? Pedro Garcia, Andy Fisher, Big Ten player, you know, Big Ten all-academic player, second-team All-American that we pick up, you know, to fill in roles in 2019 ends up being one of our best left-handed relievers, you know, gains six miles an hour on his fastball. Now is Andy just an innings filler, or is he a chance to have, you know, major league value as a lefty with a nasty sinker slider? Maybe, right? But historically, we wouldn't think that. We would pick that guy up to fill in innings. Pick up Spencer Stockton. We would pick up these players that have Jacques Pichu, who pitched in the fall league for the Reds, right? We signed him for a dollar. He was on last chance you as the kicker, right? And then he went to Austin P. We signed him out of for a dollar out of the Frontier League. And he's throwing filling innings during 88-90. Like, I don't know what Jacques' future is, but he was really good in the fall league, really good in A ball, really good in double A, and he pitched in triple A, and now he's in triple A now. It's like that's really cool. You know, A, is that a cool story? Yes. Like, B, is it something you can replicate, which is what people don't believe? Also, yes, which is a big um, a big weakness, a big area, a big underexplored area to get better. But more importantly than A and B is that it's not just we need to rethink how we acquire players and how we're going to bring them in and how we're going to train them, especially when we shorten the draft to, to 20 rounds. And we know 20 is not the final number, we know it's going to get shorter. You know that, I know that, right? Mm -hmm. And so imagine if in the NFL, you didn't care about non-drafted free agents. I mean, your team would be useless in two years, right? They have to, right? There's six right. rounds and you have a huge roster, right? Like by definition, you have to care about non-drafted free agency. And that's coming to baseball. And it's not coming. I'd argue it's here. It's always been here. We just haven't paid attention to it. But it's going to get more important. We have to care about indie ball. We have to care about pro scouting. We have to care about you know, people that fall through the cracks. We have to care about good performers that went to really bad schools. We have to care about some of our best players came from underfunded HBCUs, right? Chucky Robinson and JC Keys both went to Southern Miss, Southern Miss, both excellent players. Chucky was unbelievable catcher, right? Mm -hmm. He's an incredible player. And what Chucky said to me, I'll never forget. I was just talking about this yesterday. He was saying, um, you know, if there, if the draft was 20 rounds, Chucky wouldn't have been drafted, right? And that, that's and that's tough because like a lot of players at HBCUs and smaller schools, you know, need to develop inside professional baseball. Right. So if we're talking about minority representation, and for those who don't know, Chuck, he's black. He's a black catcher and one of the very few. And he's an excellent catcher, excellent receiver, great game caller. I think he's going to play in the big leagues. I love Chucky. Right. But the problem is, is like we're excluding these players where we're going may exclude these players, which really a damages the product from a talent perspective, but then also our stated minority diversity and inclusion guidelines. Right. Like Chucky and JC were both drafted after the 20th round and both have major league value. Like teams were calling on JC to trade for him. Right. Like there's no surprise that they liked him. Right. And Chucky, we rule five from the Astros. The Astros loved him. They just couldn't keep him. Right. There's just not enough room. And so it's like those are the things I really think about that rattle in my brain. How do we make baseball a more fair sport, a more diverse, a more equitable sport? But additionally, like, yeah, there's the moral argument, which I won't disagree with. We need to do a better job. But we're also just not getting the best talent. Right. If we don't think differently and if we don't really think about who this affects with the smaller drafts right? people say, oh, it's better. And these players don't have a chance. But you tell that to Chucky Robinson. 
like that guy's a really good player, right? And um, he needed the resources inside the Astros. He needed the resources. No surprise that he went to Houston and got so much better, right? Because he didn't have it in college. He didn't have it where he came from. And that's what I fear we're going is if we make those changes as a league and if our organizations don't pivot to thinking differently, we're going to A, hurt the product on the field and B, really fall short of our diversity and inclusion targets, which are very important of themselves. So that it's a, it's a subject I'm very passionate about and um, definitely something I would target very quickly, you know, when I become an AGM and really in charge of the minor leagues, I think. Yeah. And that's, it's, I think it's just true in all levels of the game, you know, that no it doubt. seems like there's even like with like youth baseball that, you can buy your way into certain things, right? Absolutely. And especially with, I noticed it with pitching. Look at the backgrounds of a lot of these top draft pitchers from high school or even the guys that go to college because they can afford to. It's not just players' kids. It's like millionaires, billionaires' kids. I mean, they're all over the place. You can go and look at the backgrounds themselves. But I always kind of think about that as, you know, with having a baseball job, you're obsessed with this stuff, so you think about baseball all the time. But you know, I, I worry that we're losing athletes. We're just losing sort of letting players play and like earn it as opposed to like these insulated bubbles where like everyone's coming through like these train facilities, whatever it is. And like, you know, this showcases, et cetera. And it's not necessarily about going out there, playing the game, getting better. And, you know, guys develop at different rates, you know, a, guy that's 13 years old like it almost feels like they've been like graded ranked sent off you know and it's like rare when these guys pop up and it's just i don't know i guess i'm not articulating this well but it no but it's it feels, I, I've, it feels no like i have a great like this in, in comparison to other sports like everything just in baseball seems like it's like predetermined ahead of time like yeah three yeah. four well, years ahead yeah. of time guys it's, it's, he's gonna be this he's gonna be that where then they, they get to pro ball and it is the actual chaos because more often than not, you have to earn it. I don't know if it's for everybody, but certainly. No, it's the essence of scouting, right? It's what scouts, you know, are good at and what we're supposed to be doing. So when we centralize these events, that these are the predetermined people we're going to look at, you A, lose out on a lot of diverse candidates, right? Obviously. But also, B, you get a homogenous group of players that have similar overlapping skills, which is not good for organizational resiliency, right? So a good example, Lee Saris, who I brought up and is a man that I greatly respect, right? And is a very, is a legendary Northeast scout. He's now in the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, Lee was first on, now Josiah Gray ended up being a big deal at LeMoyne, right? But Lee was on him, and Josiah will say it on Twitter, and we've talked about it. Josiah will say, uh, Lee was scouting me before I knew I was any good. Right, Lee, you know, and Lee's at LeMoyne, and he's like, I know this kid's a shortstop, but he's going to pitch. He's going to be good, you know? And then ultimately, like, yeah, Lee's right. They ended up drafting uh, Josiah in the top three rounds, right? And so, like, that's that's a great story, right? But let me yeah. tell you one that I think is a little more important because Josiah ended up, you know, he he was really good, and he would have been a top 100 draft pick by any team, right? But here's a player who wasn't. His name's Alex Johnson, right? And you look at him today, and he's in Daytona Beach. He's in Loway now. And if you saw him, you're like, this guy is going to play in the NBA, right? And probably he would have if this, you know, and Lee's in Buffalo and he's watching a kid that's thrown 10, 10 innings in high school, four years, right? And it's stiff. Don't really know what's going on, but the kid's a good kid, you know, and he really wasn't going anywhere to play basketball. He's committed to a junior college and, you know, he would have developed every bit of as a good athlete because kid's fast. And he's a great kid. 
right? So Lee season pitch a couple times stays on and he's like, I don't know what it is, but we got to do something, you know, brings him in for a pre-draft workout in Cincinnati, you know, gets him in there, kid throws and they sign him for six figures. Right. And Alex answers the system, trains his ass off, right. Is looks ridiculous. Body is incredible. Right. Added a ton of weight, started eating, right. Just eating more. Right. Um, and he's just such an awesome worker. And I can't say enough about the kid. And that's a kid that was never in a perfect game event. Never doesn't, you know, doesn't come, he's not super poor, but he doesn't come from a family of means, right? Comes from inner city Buffalo, right? He's yeah. worked, family has worked for what they have, right? Nothing's been given. And that is, that is what, to me, it was what scouting was about, right? And Lee agreed wholeheartedly, right? That type of work going into, you know, backfields everywhere, high schools and finding that uncovered talent is a, a huge competitive advantage, which first and foremost, you should care about. But B is the way to actually make the sport equitable, you know? And uh, so I think about that a lot, honestly. So when you don't have that type of initiative or you don't reward that or you don't focus on that, um, you end up having a homogenous product, which is unfortunately, I agree, is where, where we're going. I don't think that's predetermined. I think we can change that. Um, yeah. But I do worry about it. You know, I do worry that basketball and football are, are, are you know, taking a lot of our best athletes um, and the focus at the major leagues and the minor leagues is, is fine and, and all that, but it's got it. And the focus at, you know, urban youth academies and investing in it, that's all very good, but it has to be about family. It has to be about telling a story about how players playing to AAA, especially with the minor league housing being fixed in the vast majority of organizations, you know, and, and getting a program playing up to AAA and making a decent amount of money and then coaching is not a bad career in and of itself, right? Like there is an alternative to like being a star. Because not everyone can be Ken Griffey Jr. Not everyone can be Mike Trout. Not everyone can be Shohei Otani, right? And like when you promote the best players as a reasonable outcome, like this is what we should focus. I don't think that serves us very well because the journeyman MLB player or the player that plays in AAA and then goes and plays overseas and makes maybe $2 million in his career, still a hell of an outcome that we would take, yeah. right? And those are the stories that I don't think get told. They're not as sexy to tell. I don't know exactly how to tell them. But, you know, that's, I think, a very exciting, I think that's a very interesting way to maybe think about how we should grow this game in ways beyond the top level and beyond the youth level. We need to think about just like median outcomes are, are pretty good for playing baseball. Yeah. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it's the thing that, that I love about, about baseball, um, particularly at the amateur level. And I think you look at, you know, I get it with, you know, the, the Cape Cod League, but outside of Boston College, and I guess to a lesser extent, UConn, I don't have really any power five type schools around, but I have like Bryant, you know, I'll go and watch games at URI Harvard. There's players that come from all these schools and, you know, you had like Matt Mikulski from, you know, Fordham last year. Yeah. Really good player. Yeah. I mean, but there's, but there's other guys in those teams that get drafted too, that maybe end up in triple a or, or double a or whatever it is, but those would be exciting guys for me to go out and see and like, you know, follow along with like how that guy does, you know, I obviously don't have any impact on <laughs> getting them signed or anything like that. But um, when I go to the Cape, like I love tweeting out video of, of guys that maybe are performing that, you know, aren't as big as stars. Like I know there was one from um, UC, UNC Greensboro was uh Prez Kavanaugh. That was like the same lineup as like Brock Wilkin. And he had a really yeah. good summer and he'll probably end up getting drafted in like round, you know, seven to 12 or something like that. It was like Nico Cavadas the year before with like Notre Dame. Um, 
those are the more interesting stories, I think, because if those guys yeah. make it, like there was more into it, you know. And you need it as an organization. You can't. Yeah. You're, and I love these two, so hopefully they don't yell at me. But like, <laughs> you can't build your organization around Hunter Green and Nicoladolo. Like, yeah. You can't. Like Hunter is. I, it's pretty surprising, but I think Hunter is like pretty underrated still. <laughs> I think like people aren't going to realize it's a generational talent. It's just yeah. a joke, you know. And Lodolo is, you know, every bit as good in a very different way, you know. Yep. And it's going to be awesome to watch. But those guys are top five picks, both of them, right? And that's great. They're going to be cornerstones of the organization for a very long time. The Graham Ashcraft wasn't a big deal until he was, right? And uh, Carson Spires was not a deal at all until he was, you know, Stevie Branch will be closing games in the big leagues and people will be like, oh, it's a great story, but it's like, but it doesn't need to be, it shouldn't be a good story. It actually should be a boring story. Like that's, that's how you know you've achieved success. When division three players like Stevie Branch break in the league at 25, 26 years old and rack up a bunch of saves and are sitting a hundred, that should be like, well, of course that happens. That happens every day. And once we get there, we're in pretty good shape. Right. Like that's, you know, when Alex Johnson gets to the big leagues, so it's a 33rd rounder from Buffalo who threw 10 innings in high school. What an awesome story. And now he's 95, 97 with a bastard slider and he's a great kid from a great family. And they're going to make a big deal out of it. But success will be when Alex Johnson is a boring story. Like when you don't write an article about Alex, because like that happens a lot. Like, and once that's the case, then we've done a good job. Like that's, that's how I feel about it. It's beautiful. All right. Last question I'm going to ask you, cause we're going a little bit longer than uh, I anticipated, but um it tends to be when you're talking about minor leaguers man yeah. dude, it's the same with me <laughs> like it's the same with me i could sit here for like two hours it's just that <laughs> i hate to keep anybody for free for that long um but you you brought up something that i know i've had this conversation in scouting sections i've had it with friends of mine that are scouts just general conversation when you're writing reports and like how to approach it or like even you know guys at prospects live because we did do control and command grades unfortunately for a few years um but the concept of control and command being separate and different um or command even existing at all i think is another concept that i've heard discussed a lot i know you've you've discussed it a little bit on social recently um but i wanted to get your your thoughts and just have you expand on that a little bit um because it's something that like i've i've struggled with and i think like i it was freeing to finally like kind of move away from command in the sense that it was like you can explain control and then I was like all right now explain command and how you can separate that from control and I never felt comfortable really like with the explanation you know um so I wonder if it's the same for you or if like you know I'm sure you probably have more data or some way to sort of quantify it better than I can yeah and I think you definitely can look at the data for sure but I think what a great way to conceptualize the difference or perhaps the lack of the of command being a thing is what do the two teams that have developed the most jags right just the guys right these just jarps average righties like what have they done and how do they teach their pitchers to throw strikes and how do they set up both in the minors and the majors right so i think that's a great way to start and those two teams are the astros and the tampa bay Rays, right and so You'll notice, I mean, when you watch Glass now pitch or McClanahan, who doesn't have good command or control, right? And you watch Zanino, great receiver, one of the best, like receive them and catch. Or you watch Houston when like those guys come up, they just sit in the middle of the plate and just throw everything over the middle, right? And there's public quotes, right? Like this stuff is not controversial, or maybe it is, but like I'm not making it up. <laughs> but you can hear like Kyle Snyder, the pitching coach, 
like tell glass now and glass now said this publicly right like if you just throw everything over the middle of the plate and you throw it in the hula hoop before two strikes like then we're just gonna win like because if you have stuff good enough to pitch for the tampa bay rays you have stuff good enough to throw over the middle all the time which is a really good way to think about it yeah you know like glass now doesn't have to think about anything except throwing zero spot fastballs right because a he can't do that like that's just not that that's not that easy right our big league pitching coach with the reds we would start every bullpen with five fastballs right down the middle. And the pitchers like didn't like to do it at the beginning, but it's like, okay, like if you can just throw five fastballs right down the middle to start the pen at 90 miles an hour, when you throw a hundred, then, you know, if you can do that a couple times, they're not to do it anymore. And no one can do it. It's like, just not that easy. It is really not that easy to throw five fastballs down the middle, not even dotted just in the middle of the plate. Yeah. Right. Like you can throw five out of five strikes almost every big leader can. Right. But that's very different than five in the same spot. Right. So when you watch like some of the best teams that develop the pitching and, and get their control, get people's control under control, so to speak. Right. Great player who had a lot of walks up until, until he gets treated. Shane Boz, great stuff, extremely yep. good stuff. We had the misfortune of facing Shane Boz a couple of times in double A in Montgomery in Chattanooga. You know, fortunately when we faced Shane Hunter pitched, so that solved that problem. But like, Shane just threw a billion strikes and never walked a guy. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. This guy always walked players for years, yeah. right? Like this guy is known for having 30 command, right? What the hell, you know? And it's just a comfort thing, right? Like being able to throw strikes is the ability to command the ball too, right? So when you think when the best organizations just throw everything over the middle and like let the stuff play, then you start to kind of challenge your assumptions on like A's, does command really matter or does throwing strikes matter? And then B is command a thing. So the way I think about command is not necessarily that it doesn't exist. I mean, as it's defined, like throwing to spots is, but like by definition, throwing a fastball down and away is much harder than throwing a fastball up. Right. Yeah. And it has nothing to do. And like everyone will say, oh yeah, of course, throwing a fastball glove side down is, is hard and a cornerstone of pitching in the big leagues. It's like a, p- a pitching coach once told me with the Reds, and I really like this idea. He's like, the fastball doesn't want to go down and away. It's actively defying it, right? It's trying to either sink and go to the right to the arm, the arm side, or it's trying to go up because it has lift. So, like, when you try to throw pitches that have profiles that don't want to go there, then you're going to have worse command than if you just threw it to the target zone it was good at. And he said that to me, and I said, that makes way too much sense to be real. Like, that just seems so obvious, right? And then when you actually, like, put it into practice like we did with the Reds before two strikes, it's like, Oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. Suddenly, players that have bad command have average command. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, if they just throw the pitches where they're supposed to, instead of like fastballs down and away, backdoor sliders, front door changeups, it's like these things just add up as balls, you know, and are hard to execute and probably not worth practicing, you know, until they get to the higher levels, right? Those pitches yeah. you'll need in the big leagues, but it doesn't make sense to really work on that. You know, if your stuff's so good, then when the catcher sets up on the outside black and you throw a hundred and the player has marginal command and he misses three inches away for a ball, whose fault is that? Is that the pitcher's fault or is it the catcher cutting off half the plate? And now the pitcher can only miss arm side for a strike, right? Like, I think we got to think about, we have to challenge those assumptions. Um, And you want to talk about people getting mad about org fillers, bring this up, bring this up to scouts and coaches. I mean, it is not a not a popular topic, but unfortunately, when you watch the Yankees, Astros, Tampa Bay Rays, and then you know the Reds at the time, like that's that's how they did it, and they had a lot of success doing it. The Twins too, and uh, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. I remember I was days. watching, 
I was hard watching, to swallow, but it's true. I was watching the Braves last night when Spencer Strider came in. Oof. You know, Strider has like you know huge stuff, and it's only gone up. And and I've honestly, from my experience of the Cape last summer, and then just conversations I've had, it seems like the Braves have moved in a really you know positive direction in that sense. But catcher just setting up in the middle of the plate like every single time. You know, there's 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 like none of this. Like it doesn't matter. Like because the ball is going to go where it's going to go. I also think the other right. thing that you brought up that's interesting and something that I think in my mind, you know, I've I've understood but never been able to like talk to a coach or a scout that would actually want to discuss it this way. But where you locate should be based on like how your pitches move. Like, yep. you know, if you have a sweeper or whatever, you know, like and it moves to an extreme amount, like you should probably be trying to throw it more, more arm side because it's going to end up glove side anyway. Like, like it just makes sense with like physics and movement and, and everything else. It's just, it's, it's remarkable that people continually try to put a a square peg in a round hole. I mean, I've heard it from pitchers over and over again, like guys that had high ride, you know, high ride forcing fastballs are relatively efficient. And they spent three years in college with, you know, 11 to 12% walk rates because somebody was telling them to throw low in the zone over and over and over again, low, low glove side, and they could never locate there. And then like, as soon as they go to pro ball instantaneously, like they cut their walk rate in half just because they're throwing fastballs up in the zone where it should go. Like, yeah. Braxton Roxby walked 10 guys per game in college, <laughs> you know, and then didn't really have a problem throwing strikes with the reds, you know? And, um, yeah, it can be that simple. You know, another way is, you know, I was with an organization a long time ago and they tracked intended versus actual. So like you have the pitching coach, you know, when I was with this organization, I mean, they worked their pitching coaches to death, you know, um, guys are showing up seven o'clock game. I asked my buddy who's now in the big leagues, he's a coach at the big leagues, you know, and I was like, what time are you getting to the park Tuesday, start of a series, seven Oh five game, you know, it's triple A coach. What time are you get to the park? He's like, oh, 10 a.m. Like 10 a.m. for what? He's like, well, you know, I eat breakfast there, I save some money, and then uh, I get a lift in. I said, okay, what is that? An hour and a half. So 11:30 shower, you know, and you're, you're at work at 11:45. He's like, yeah, I'm at my desk at like noon, the latest. I'm like, bro, like, okay, you're at your desk at noon for a seven o'clock game. What are you doing? He's like, I gotta cut the video. I got a chart. I do an intended zone versus actual. I do overlays. I do uh, all the track man data. I'm like, man, that's that's incredible. It's so much work. Um, you know, and like, that's, that organization didn't do it because they were cheap. They had, they had interns, you know, they had analysts and what that AGM told me at that organization, I said, man, you make them do a lot of work. And he's like, if I'm like, why don't you have the interns do it? Like charting. And he's like, because everything that you make interns do that you don't have coaches do the coaches inherently don't value, right? Like if it's given to them, it's different than them being responsible for it. Yeah. And I said, man, that's pretty wild. Now, I still think they kind of took it a little too far and demanded too much of their coaches. And, and recently, that's the organization has dialed back that. But, like, it's true. If you don't know how it was generated, you don't have respect for it, you don't value it. You know, and if you're not – if you aren't responsible for generating that information to get your players better, then inherently you may not think that it matters that much, right? Um, and so we took that attitude, you know, with the Reds. You know, I told our technology interns, I said, hey, you know, our pitching coaches set up the rap soda. They set up the track. You know, they set up the edutronic. You know, they're responsible for doing a lot of that. Um, and it, it created a lot of that buy-in. And the pitchers knew that our coaches were responsible for it. And then, you know, throughout the season, the coaches delegated those responsibilities to the players. And I thought that was really cool. 
because our players, when I took over Dayton to coach for a week, like those players knew exactly what to do. Like this guy takes the trunk out. This guy sets up the reps over. This guy does this and it rotates every, you know, every day. And it's like, geez, like you don't even have to be here. <laughs> like these guys know exactly what to do. You know, they're in charge of their own career. And it was really awesome. Yeah. To watch. And so that's uh that's the other part. So a big part of command to bring it back to the topic and not, you know, get too far afield as we're wrapping this is that like, where was the catcher? Where was the pitcher trying to throw the ball? You know, and then where did he actually throw it? And what pitch type was it? Right. And so, but then you have to get the catchers on board, right? Because where the catcher puts the mitt should be the target. That's not always the case. Right. So you, you get the catchers on board and with the reds, we did this, right. Put the glove where you want the pitch. Now an a ball was easy because before two strikes, everything down the middle, right. Maybe Carson Spires would, would get a pass line Richardson. Those guys had really good command. You know, they had much finer control of their pitches, right? So maybe not so much, right? But like by and large, we're throwing everything down the middle and getting ahead, period, yeah. right? So then, but then with two strikes, put the glove where you want it, not where you think it's going to go. And then we would tell our pitchers the same thing. So then we can measure the mean distance and say, hey, when you throw sliders off the plate, your miss distance is much higher than when you throw them on the plate, right? So when you're trying to get that chase, maybe just instead throw it on the plate, but change your mentality. Oh, great. You know, when you try to fa- execute fastball down, like you have better success locating the fastball down than you do away. So if you're trying to throw a shadow zone fastball, let's just go down, down with it instead of away. Okay, great. Cool. Cool. And you find out like, what can the player do? You know, what is he intending to do? What can he do? And then adjust the pitch plans from that. And all of a sudden their command gets a lot better because you're not asking them. You're not asking a fish to climb a tree, right? You're telling you, you're like, the person already does these things well. And like, Hey, okay, you can't throw a fastball away. So we're not going to do that in game, but you are going to work on it every day in the pens. Cause like that yeah. is a weapon you're going to need in double A, triple A, the big leagues. Right. So, so in the game, all that matters is winning hundred percent. We're, we're competing to win. Right. But in the pens, you're not executing fastball middle in because you have a missed distance of eight inches on that pitch, which is really good. Right. Like you dot fastballs in. So I don't want you throwing any of those in the pen. Like your pen should be difficult. You should be trying to learn things. Right. And yeah. like that integration of technology and player development, I promise it's not happening in more than one organization at best, you know, maybe two, maybe, but like realistically um, that type of work and that type of quantification is not happening. And I think that's really sad because we do it for our big leaguers at driveline. Like we chart the players and we give them those reports. And in the off season, we train that way. Um, And to not have it, that's not a technological thing. That program, that script takes like eight hours to write at the most, right. And to collect that data and to monitor it just requires a coach that's bought in, you know, just requires players to watch video and care. And if you set the culture, those things take care of itself. But if you start with the shiny toys, if you start with the data, if you start with the technology without having the culture in play, you're not going to have any success. And that's true. That's half the organizations right now. They're dropping all this information technology without getting the culture right. And all of a sudden you're seeing a large backlash against analytics as a result. I don't blame them. Like you don't get the culture right. Yeah. None of that stuff's going to help. It's going to hurt. Yeah. If it's not applied and you know, you're not utilizing the tools correctly, not going to work. Yeah. And not a culture of responsibility. And this is what we're going to do when you just drop it on them. It's not going to work. Well, there you go. I could, I could continue this conversation. I swear to God for like another hour and a half, but no doubt. Man, we'll do it at the end of the year. Maybe we can do a wrap. We'll do it again. A hundred percent. But um, thank you for giving me your time. Kyle body driveline baseball, follow him on Twitter, everywhere else. uh, And continue to read the content you guys put out. I know I just read something. A few minutes ago before I jumped on here about, um, I think it was eight miles per hour that uh, Cardinals, I guess he's still a prospect, Lars Nupar added uh, in bat speed, which was pretty remarkable. And it was uh, really detailed and you learn a lot. Um, just from Yeah, got, got Nolan Aaron out of the come by. 
as yeah. well and work with Nolan. It's cool to work guys that detail oriented. It's awesome. Amazing. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. And we'll do this again. Yeah. Thank you, man.